Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. One of the most significant and often profoundly underappreciated challenges of modern medical research lies in trying to meaningfully balance our commonalities and our particularities. On the one hand, the human body can reasonably be looked upon as a highly complex machine, with all of us possessing the same constituent parts, so that when something goes wrong with some bits of it, we can reasonably call that a disease or condition and try to focus our attention on fixing it. On the other hand, a primary lesson that we've learned from the explosion of biological knowledge that we've experienced over the past quarter century or so has been to what a large extent we are all, genetically speaking, unique. Navigating between these two pivotal poles is the challenging and exciting day job of UC Irvine's Jay Gargas, who's determined to use his cutting-edge genetic expertise to penetrate the mysteries of autism. You have an MD and PhD from Yale, is is, is that right? So were you one of these people who always wanted to be a doctor when you were a little kid? Was this something that you were fascinated by, or, or, or how, did you, how did you get into, into genetics research and, not, and all of that? Um, the, so, no, it's certainly not the case that I always wanted to be a doctor. Um, it happened that uh, g- genetics were at a very exciting time when I was an undergraduate at Case Western Reserve, and they had s- some very good programs there that let you do research during the month of January. So we had what was called 414. And I got exposed to some very interesting paradigms that were just evolving hmm. uh, in bacterial genetics at that time. And it became very clear that that was the way you could answer complicated problems to me. And one of my faculty advisors said, you know what, you really should do an MD-PhD because this kind of stuff is moving into humans. And then I had the opportunity to go to Cold Spring Harbor uh, which is sort of where Jim Watson had just moved there um, uh, at that time. And they have training programs for postdocs, but I was able to get into it as an undergraduate. And um, uh, they were just starting to do genetics in humans and then went to Yale where they were really doing some pioneering stuff and beginning to do the kinds of genetics that we, were, we knew how to do in bacteria in, 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 in human cells and was exposed to a lot of people who really were pioneering trying to understand what human mutations were. We didn't really even know at that time that human mutations were the same as bacterial mutations. They did a lot of funny things that that didn't exactly correlate with what we expected them to do. So it was a very interesting time and it's been just absolutely amazing to see how rapidly human genetics has been transformed. I mean when I was at Cold Spring Harbor they were passing on the techniques for what we call now banding chromosomes, so that we could identify every chromosome separately. I mean, it's sort of amazing when you go back, you only have to go back to 1956, and we didn't have the right number of chromosomes for humans. Oh, really? We thought they had 48. 
And then in 56, they found we have, we, we, that we really have 46. And it wasn't until the time around when I was at Cold Spring Harbor when they were able to do banding and recognize each one from, a, from, they used to be able to recognize them by the size classes, but with banding they could then see each chromosome apart. So, so to go to that point, <laughs> and while I was at Yale, the first genome was sequenced by Sherman Weissman's group, and it took two floors of the building and about 25 postdocs, and what they sequenced was 3,000 base pairs. It's the kind of a thing that a first-year graduate student can do in the first week in the first day <laughs> of their protein. I mean, it's like, it's like unbelievable um, how the technology has just driven this field enormously over a very short period of time. So, so it's, been, it's really been mind-boggling to see that, you know, when I was at Yale as a graduate student, we were talking about the training programs called gene transfer, and then to move a gene, we moved a whole chromosome, and that was considered a major achievement to be able to do that. And now we can go in and we can edit every mutation and we can fix them and we can understand all of the sequence. So, I mean, it's going to take time to digest all that information, but it's all there now. So it's just absolutely amazing how rapidly this field has, has moved. So you hit the right place at the right time and, and uh, the right place meaning planet Earth, I guess. <laughs> I mean, good for yes, you. yes, yeah, right, right, right. You, you, you had a throwaway comment about uh, Cold Spring Harbor normally being for, for postdocs and you got in as an undergraduate. So how, right. how did that work? Did I don't know. I, knew, I mean, I, I was at Case Western Reserve uh, as an undergrad. Um, I'd done some interesting research as an undergrad. They as an undergrad. Put, so they put me into a master's program. I got a master's at the same time I got my undergraduate. And really? one of the faculty was going to be teaching at Cold Spring Harbor, and I got accepted into the program. So you're a very self-effacing guy. You just smooth that over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One thing I, um, I wanted to start with was, again, something from your, from your public lecture. And you, you start off, or at least at some point uh, towards the beginning, you talk about how people should look at the world that, um, that all of us have some genetic susceptibility to diseases that are oh, around sure. us. Um, and as part of a motivation as to why we should look at some of these conditions, we're going to talk about autism, but we're going to talk more broadly first right, right, about, right. About, about things. Um, this idea that uh, of emphasizing the importance of looking at the world through genetic eyes, as it were, in terms of being able to make, um, to, in terms of being able to get a deeper understanding of, of what's actually causing what and, and, and how we're susceptible to different uh, diseases or conditions and so forth. And I, for me, that's, that's a bit of a startling notion, this idea that I am carrying the genes uh, for basically every condition around. Sure. Everybody's got the same set of genes, and genes are just the names of places on chromosomes. And what we view as the differences between people are what we call, a genetic we call an allele, a copy difference, like different flavors of ice cream. It's like just tiny changes in the sequence make for a different DNA sequence and that makes for a different function often. Um, the best understood functional changes we understand in that kind of a manner. But, but the 
point is, and this has been done for really a long time at a mathematical level, we sort of can figure out what the disease load is that people typically carry. And, and, we, and, in, and again, I'm, I do medical genetics as well, and in talking to families who have a child who's gotten a rare disease because each parent contributed one copy towards that, we call those people carriers, and those kind of diseases are recessive diseases. That means you have to get an abnormal copy from mom, an abnormal copy from dad. But mom and dad each carry a copy that's normal as well as a copy that's abnormal. That's a recessive inheritance pattern. In that kind of situation, we try to explain that you know, we know that everybody carries mutations for probably seven to 10 lethal conditions, which they're protected from by the fact that they get a full set of the genome from mom and a full set of the genome from dad. So, so it's, there's nothing unusual, there's nothing um, bad about being a carrier. And in fact, what we really understand is that the best good for humans, but for all species, is the breadth of diversity. The diversity that you have is the thing that lets you get through bottlenecks, that lets you get through difficult times. And so um, there's no such thing as a good genome. There's um, uh, a genome that might, under certain circumstances, convey a certain selective advantage. And, and you know, we see that with things like, in typical examples being things like sickle cell anemia, where if you carry one copy of the sickle cell anemia gene, you're protected from things like malaria. But of course, if you get two copies, then you have a serious disease that can be lethal. It can be very, very debilitating. So, so we, we have lots of examples of, of, of quote, bad genomes that in special circumstances are very, very beneficial. So let's start at the very beginning with some definitions of sure. things. Because if you're some guy on the street, you've heard these words, you've heard DNA, you've heard chromosome, you've heard genome, um, you've heard, you talked about gene sequencing in terms of, so let's, g give me a, a a brief overview of what these what these things actually mean, okay. uh, and then we can start talking about the specifics. Because at least for me, um, there's always a bit of a disconnect between looking at the notion of a mutation that I think everybody understands intuitively to some extent. Something wrong happens. Something different happens. Right. And then looking at the actual functionality. And to do that, we have to know where things are mutating and where the functionality is. So give give me a little bit of a big picture okay. of that. Okay. So so. Um, I'm not going to go back into deep history, but the, but the chromosomes we, we, we clearly understand are uh, structures. They're strands of DNA. They're gigantic strands of DNA in humans. Um, uh, 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 and, and, and the action part uh, is the DNA part. And DNA is just a, a you can think about it like poppet beads. It's a, a long linear molecule of letters, and we only use four letters. Uh, uh, to spell out all the information. We know there's only four letters. Um, but there's the, the chromosomes in man, as well as in higher organisms, it's not true in bacteria, but are complicated with lots and lots of proteins wrapped around them that, that pick the times that those different pieces of DNA get exposed and turned on. And that's really into the level of gene expression, and it's, it's an evolving field. And we certainly don't 
have a comprehensive understanding of how okay. that works. So, so back up. So these proteins, which are some, some complicated molecular things, right? I'm guessing. Yes. Things is probably not the technical word. They're somehow wrapped around... The, they, 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 they compact this long linear DNA molecule into a much more compact structure. And there are some simple structural proteins like histone proteins that do that, but there are also some very fancy regulatory proteins that do more elaborate things in terms of unraveling the DNA. But, but at the level of the chromosome, the chromosome is a complex of a string of DNA and a whole bunch of proteins that are associated with it. So that, okay. and, and, and the part we understand really well is the DNA sequence, because now we can read that sequence. So um, at, the, at the current level, without belaboring all the ways we've known the word gene, <laughs> which is a very interesting point, because as I told you when I was a graduate student, there, there was still a lot of uncertainty whether the kinds of things that happened in man were really going to be the same as the kinds of things we understood happening on chromosomes in bacteria. Right. We weren't really sure of that. Um, so, so, so at the level of, of the, 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 the DNA now, we can read all of that. We routinely read all of that. Now all the kids being enrolled in our center are getting whole genome sequencing. Now, the progress of that is just mind-boggling because you know the first genome that was sequenced that was Craig Venter's sequence and that 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 took 10 years it took I can't even tell you how many hundreds if not thousands of research laboratories and um, three billion dollars the second genome was Jim Watson's genome and that probably took about one-tenth the amount of money it took a couple hundred million dollars probably to do that much faster, and then the third genome was only $50,000, and now we're routinely getting them for under $1,000, whole genome sequences. Wow. And so, so the technology has changed that dramatically, and how well we can read the piece of DNA, how well you can read those poppet beads, the letters on that. Now, we don't know what they mean, but we know that we are able to create a file of those three billion, in fact, it's really six billion, because you have to read the copy you got from mom and the copy you got from dad. So you have to read both strings of DNA in order to get all of this information. Um, but the speed and the price has fallen dramatically. So that now we're at the point where we're inundated with how are we even gonna handle keeping this information around. When we get the information back from the sequence, they have to mail us a hard disk. <laughs> you can't do it in any easy way. We have to have supercomputers just to keep the files of the DNA sequences and, 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 and very elaborate what we call pipelines in order to manage that data. So, 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 so conventionally, we took the chromosome, we said on the chromosome there are a lot of genes. Now that's still true, we still have things that are conventionally called genes. And the things that we understand in the simple sense as genes make up about 1% to 2% of all of the DNA sequence. That means that at our current level of understanding, about 98% of the DNA on our chromosomes are relatively unannotated. And, and, and to a large extent, we, we will often ignore that part of the DNA. That is, Again, as the technology has changed so rapidly, 
we don't see that there's any efficiency in only capturing what's called the exome. The exome is that one to two percent of the DNA that codes for a gene that makes a protein. I'll come to that in a second, but it's a part that we really understand how a mutation works in that. But this other 98% of the DNA, we know that there can be mutations in those areas that do make disease, but we're really on shaky ground in terms of interpreting them. And as, so, 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 so the gene is, a, and again, this, this, this part collapses back to the era of bacterial genetics, where the gene is a linear sequence of DNA that you read three bases at a time, and each of those three bases represents an amino acid. And again, an amino acid is like a poppet bead, a long string of, now here we have to use 20 flavors of the amino acids to build a protein. And that protein knows how to fold up. So just the chemistry of the linear string, what we call the primary sequence of the protein, will dictate how that protein folds up. When the chain folds up, it'll make little grooves and little, and those wind up being catalytic sites for proteins for, often. That's a simple example, but, but um, th that functionality is what works. And if you make a change in one of those poppet beads, the thing won't fold up the same, the site won't work the same, and so you'll have broken that enzyme. And that is how we understand disease process. So many of our simple Mendelian. Men Gregor Mendel was sort of the father of genetics. Uh, he simply identified that these traits were genes and that those genes segregated independently of one another. Those are some of his key tenets. And, 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 and we came to understand through really the process of molecular biology, molecular genetics, a lot of it worked out first in bacteria and then later back translated to man that a gene encodes, so one gene, one protein, one protein, one function. And, and then we would make these functions would work into networks and pathways. And right. so you would take a simple sugar molecule and you'd change one bond, then change another bond, change another bond, and you'd ultimately make this complicated transformation that could build something like vitamin C or some complicated molecule that we you know, could eventually put together a very, very long pathway. Many, many genes interacting together to build this pathway that could do a very complicated thing. Right. Okay. So uh, I want to talk about that in more detail. Uh, but before I do, I want to back up just a little bit. Right. So if I'm imagining that I've got this DNA, which is uh, in my chromosomes, and I have a whole bunch of different chromosomes. What is it, 46 or 48? 46. Or 46 of these chromosomes. And I have, I, that's what I get in terms of inheritance. I get one from my mom, and I get one from my dad. and then 23 from mom, 23 from dad. If you get an X and an X, you're a girl. If you get an X and a Y, then you're a boy. Right. So. And, I've, and all of that represents all of my DNA that's, that's apportioned in these chromosomes. Right. Um, and when someone talks about my genome or the genome, they're looking at all of that DNA and all over the place? Right. Is that that's right. Your genome is all of your DNA sequence. So, so, so your genomic sequence would be 6 billion base reads. So it would be 6 billion digits in a row. Uh, because you have to read moms and dads. And in reality, when we do that, you have to imagine 
you're at a typewriter and you're typing. That's basically how the machines are kind of working. So there, there will be errors that will be made. How do you know there's an error? Well, typically when we're doing genomic sequencing, we want to read every sequence 30 times at least. So we read at a depth of 30-fold so that we're going to have read little pieces of the sequence and we overlap, we don't do it, the computers okay. overlap all these sequence reads so that we have a huge amount of redundancy and we can see what the real sequence is. And that becomes critical for being able to be confident that you have the data set. That's why, again, in our center what we've decided to do is that even though we know that right now we can't read and know what to do with that 98% of the non-coding, we call that non-coding DNA, um, it, it's cost-effective, it's logical, it's appropriate to collect that data because once a person's genome never changes. That is, from the moment of conception, the DNA in that person is the same in all the different tissues of their body, and it never changes over time. And so why not capture it now at one time because, again, all the regulatory things are just enormous to get to find people, to consent people, to we want to get all the data, even though we know first what to do with that 1% to 2% that we call the exome. So the genome is everything. Right. The exome is that 1% to 2% that encodes segments of DNA that know how to make a protein, and proteins are the things that we understand carry out metabolic pathways we know that this other DNA really is doing stuff that it probably regulates, because as I said, yeah, that, all that very complicated regulation, that's why a red blood cell is different from a skin cell, is different from a heart cell, is different from a brain cell, right. because those same set of genes get turned on in different ways in different tissues. And again, so, that's really an evolving area. So I want, I want to get back to that, but just before I do, um, my understanding is within these chromosomes, within these 46 chromosomes, that, that a, a portion, as it were, all this, these strands of DNA, as I understand it, you can also isolate things. So you can say, oh, there's a, when we talk about mutations later on, there's a mutation or there's something happening in this chromosome over here as opposed to that chromosome over there. Is that right or is that oh, wrong? No, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, we, so, so the era of having to clone it's, it's just amazing. I mean, so many of these techniques that, that these poor graduate students and postdocs spent all this time learning how to do have been superseded to the point where now you just really read the sequences. You don't really have to bother to clone them so much in order to find them. It used to be you had to go in and clone out the mutated segment in order to find it, but we certainly can do that in a very straightforward way. Um, uh, some of the techniques that have made that very easy to do, I mean, the fundamental thing about DNA that makes it easy to carry out a lot of the reactions that we do is that DNA is a double-stranded molecule and if you, if you have one strand of the molecule, it will allow you to create, to synthesize, because we, there's a process of base pairing. I told you there's four flavors right. and one flavor always pairs with a different, exact different partner. And so if you have a string of DNA with these bases, they're going to know they're going to bring in this guy, then this guy, so they can synthesize the next strand. The other thing about that is that if you put down on a grid a sequence of DNA, single strand, it will 
find a partner. It will find its partner. So that a lot of the ways that genomic sequence information came about was through what, what are called microarrays. And this led to a whole variety of studies where you could put spot down on a little chip sequences of DNA, little strings of DNA, and count on the fact that that DNA, you could then take a whole genome from a person, homogenize it, break it up into little pieces, and the piece that matched would stick. Hold, and you hold, could, hold on, hold on. How does that work? So as, a, as, as somebody from a physics background, you're right. looking at some kind of Force, you're looking at some kind of. You are looking at, hy at hydrogen bonds. If that, that's the I scientific see. So it's, a, so it's a chemistry thing. It's a chemistry <laughs> thing, but it's a combinatorial thing because, because you have to have strings of uh, 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 what we call oligonucleotides. Short strings of DNA are called oligonucleotides that are long enough so that the binding energy of having a perfect match is different from having even a single mismatch. And so all of that gets worked out. Sure. Um, a number of companies have been involved in doing it in a variety of different ways. I don't want to go through all of those sure, different sure. parts. But, but the bottom line is, is that they got better and better and better at doing higher and higher and higher densities so that the kinds of chips that we do now can look at um, 2 million spots on the chromosome. So, so again, to put that into perspective, I told you that um, just prior to the time when I went to Cold Spring Harbor, we could only count the number of chromosomes. So you could find something like Down syndrome, trisomy 21, because there was a whole extra chromosome. At first, we didn't know exactly which chromosome that was. We knew it was one of the tiny ones. Once they were able to band the chromosomes, we knew it was trisomy 21. That was chromosome 21 that there were three copies of. Um, and, and at the highest resolution that we were doing just five years ago, if you looked at, at, at chromosomes, you could resolve, because of this banding technique, seven or eight hundred places on the chromosome. Hmm. So you go from counting the chromosomes to seeing seven or eight hundred places. Now with the arrays, which have now, I would say, completely supplanted looking at chromosomes. There's not really much reason to look at chromosomes anymore. We just take the DNA from the people and put it on the microarray, and now we're looking at two million places. So you're jumping this huge jump from 700 spots to two million spots. And, and you're doing that by using this different process entirely, where it's you put it there and you see, what, you see how these things match up. Who's sticking with who? Huh. And, 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 and that really opened up because we were talking about mutations, that opened up a whole new class of mutations that we really weren't aware of um, that we call copy number variants. And, I, and, okay, and, and well, those have wound up becoming so, very important. And so, that, so I want to get back to that, but, but okay. I'm, still, I'm, still, yep. I'm, I'm still back at this. Uh, I promised I would get back to this yes. 1% to 2% business. So when, right. when I hear this, and I hear you say, uh, so let me see if I have this right. Um, here we've got the DNA within um, this, this chromosome. We've got all these little guys. And, and 1% to 2% of this DNA, we have some understanding, is responsible for protein folding and being involved in, right. in these proteins, which later on are so important to uh, our mechanistic understanding of what's actually happening with diseases and, and all the rest of that, right. Right? right? So I'm thinking, 
That's not very efficient evolutionarily. If there's, if there's only <laughs> one to two percent of these guys, then th there's a whole lot of needless redundancy in the system. So you guys must just be missing stuff. Like there, there must be a lot more that's going on. I know nothing yeah. about this, but I'm right. just it, that's well, just my there, reaction. There, there certainly is, <laughs> and, and we and we don't have the you know the, the hubris to think that we do understand. It. And we certainly, I mean, it used, it used to be called junk DNA, and we certainly know it's not junk DNA. It's definitely not accidentally being carried along for evolutionary times. I mean, that's pretty clear. We believe it has an awful lot to do with gene regulation, how a skin cell becomes different from an eye cell and all that kind of stuff. So, 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 so that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but, but, but again, in, in the efficiency of trying, let me, so I got to put this into perspective because you have to realize that you have to know what's going to be actionable because I told you about the number of genomes that have been sequenced. So now about 10,000 have been. It's really been a very steep exponential. I, I sort of gave you the timeline yeah, yeah. for the first couple of clicks, numbers, and yeah. so you sort of lose track exactly yeah. where we are. But it is still mind-boggling that every time you sequence a new genome now, you'll find tens of thousands, tens of thousands of mutations, not tens of thousands of mutations that are different than the quote, standard sequence, but tens of thousands of mutations that they've never seen in anyone ever before. Tens of thousands? Tens of, of thousands. Unique, of unique? That have what? never been seen before. So, so you try to guess in that kind of noise um, what's meaningful in the disease and you, you, you don't know where to go. So that's why for simplicity, when we're doing these studies in a clinical setting, nice. we'll often focus only on the exome, that one to two percent. Because you understand Because that. even, well, but let me, so I also want to back up and say, while we know the names of the genes, we don't necessarily know what many of them do. Huge numbers are, are quote, unannotated. They just have a serial number. We don't know what their role is. They're just a name. Wow. Okay, they been, they're, not, they're not annotated, but, but, but even within those genes that we understand, where we know they are protein coding segments, um, uh, uh, you find this same problem. It's not at the numbers of tens of thousands, but you find way more than you. So if I have a kid who's severely affected, and, I, and the only way we can even start to, to make sense out of that is what's called now we, we do the trio, what's called a trio. You do dad's sequence, mom's sequence, and the kid's sequence. And the, the, the place, what you look for, because it's the easiest, you know you're missing a lot. You know you're missing a lot. But the pl only place where you can get a signal that's rich enough is to look in the kid for a sequence that neither mom sure. nor dad had. Sure. So you're looking for a new mutation. Sure. Because that is the most promising <laughs> for being, but even if you do that, you have too many. So you have to do what's called a lot of in silico genetics, where you're in silico, meaning you're letting the computer crunch the numbers. And so you, so even so, if- So hold on a sec, so it's a Latin name for, for <laughs> that's well, applying to we, technology? We have, <laughs> we have in vivo, which means yeah, yeah, in sure. the living animal, sure. in vitro, which means in tissue culture, and then- sure. 
in silico means you're yeah. crunching it with information. I guess so. Well, I guess I'm just used to it. I, mean, I, can, I can imagine Aristotle saying, or not Aristotle, but I mean, I, I guess I can imagine Seneca or something saying in vivo, but not, not yeah. in silico. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah well, I, yeah, no, I, but that, that, is, that is the conventional term. But in any case, so you try to use all this kind of annotation and because you're going to still have more more new mutations in each kid that you do than you're going to be able to figure out. So you have to say to the computer, tell me what mutations are really damaging, that really break how those proteins fold. And then it'll, it'll sort out and it'll find the ones that really have damaged the protein. And then so you'll promote those as being the most likely of explaining what happened in this. And so it becomes, I mean, I'm just saying, it's a very big data set yeah. that you're dealing with. And so in order to simplify getting down to the parts where, the, where you're going, you know you won't understand everything, but you want to just be able to understand something. And so that's how we enrich the probability of finding something. And that's actually become quite efficient. So now if we do a trio in a kid who has a very strong clinical phenotype, the chances that we can figure out even a fairly exotic presentation where even skilled geneticists can't tell what the kid has, um, we can sort that out a third to a half of the time. So it's, a, it's, it's not a crazy batting average. And the costs have come down to the point where that's almost the most logical thing to do, is that to go to the sequence early. Yeah. And, um, and it's becoming a push where, you know, um, Already, all states do what's called newborn screening programs, where they where they where well, they take the DNA. The kid, well, no, no, where the kids get a heel stick. Yeah, they put it on filter paper. They mail it to the state lab. So pretty much all the states do that now, and they now use a technique called tandem mass spectrometry, where they're really looking at metabolites. They're not looking at the, they, they don't none, none of the state labs are looking at the DNA yet. Um, and they'll look for things that cause these rare diseases that are profoundly damaging but can have an intervention done to let the baby have a more normal life. Okay. Classic example is PKU, phenylketonuria, where if you feed the child a normal diet, they'll become profoundly um, uh, disabled. They'll have a severe intellectual disability, IQ 20 or 30, something like that. But if you just eliminate, if you just put them on a special formula, um, they lead, they're completely normal. I mean, when kids, when the people, when you know, interns come in and see the kids we're seeing in our clinic, they don't they don't even understand why we're seeing the kids, because they're functionally completely normal. So so you can so there are a lot of examples where you can really, with a very specific intervention, when you understand a mutation, you can fix it. And so that led to the newborn screening program. The PKU led to this idea of screening all the newborn kids. So they're just looking at the effects when they're doing this screening. They're looking they're, at these metabolites. They're looking at the metabolites. And, and again, in, in, in California, we, we went through this transition less than 10 years ago. Okay. To, we used to, I mean, 10 years ago, California looked at four diseases. Those, if you were born with one of those four diseases, you'd get it picked up. Uh, they then again, the geneticists campaigned with this and talked with the state, and we convinced them to move to a new technology called tandem mass spectrometry to pick up a new class of diseases that now looks for 30 or 40 diseases, something in that ballpark. Um, and all the states pretty much do it now the same kind of way. Now, the question is, that still costs. Now, again, the payback, <laughs> the legislature loves this because for every dollar they spend on newborn screening, they earn 
$40. So they'll do that a lot, right? Because it's so unbelievably expensive and so damaging to society to have to take care of an individual who's been incapacitated needlessly. Also, if you can avoid it, obviously, I mean, exactly. there's a huge moral issue involved. Right, right. Well. So that's what I'm saying. It's both yeah. benefiting their constituents as well as being very cost effective. Right. So they'll, they'll, they'll do this every time, right? And so, so the cost of the test is getting close. <laughs> We've just tried to make a pass to the state of California about this, is that um, you, know, you might really just want to grab the DNA and read the DNA. I mean, all the machines that do that are all done in California. Why not start doing it here? And this is this business of, of, of the cost coming down to $1,000 or something like that, which is what right. you were just saying. But, but, if, but, but let me say, if you scaled up to the point where you were literally doing every kid born in the state of California, the prices would probably come down even more dramatically. Right, right. And so then the, the question becomes, um, when, does that, when, do you, when do you make that switch? Ultimately we are going to be capturing sure. everybody's Well, it's a market DNA decision, DNA. presumably, at some point. Well, and I, I, you know, you're probably also going to run into a lot of civil liberties. I mean, I, do you really want to have the state of California holding your DNA sequence? Sure, I don't care. But anyway, I, I want to... I want, <laughs> I know anybody can have my DNA. But, uh, but, but let, let's get back to that later. I, okay, I want to sure, sure, sure. get... Uh, because I, I think these are fascinating ideas, but I still want to get to this groundwork of what okay. we're actually talking about. Sure. So one thing we haven't talked about was mutations. Right. There's this understanding that something goes wrong, the sequence isn't replicated in the, in the way that one would normally expect exactly. it to be replicated. But we haven't talked about factors that might actually cause that to begin with. So, sure. um, so as I understand it, uh, um, there are there are several different classes of, of, of factors. But uh, but let me just say what what I understand, and then you can tell me what's actually going on. So. Um, one way is if you do something really nasty, like you bombard people with ultraviolet radiation, or you do something like that, then presumably that's going to somehow, I'm not sure how, but somehow mm -hmm. it might change this this uh, this sequence or cause cause something. So there's there's some sense of external environmental issues, but um, might there be other factors that actually cause these 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 DNA mutations to, to begin with? Right. Well, I mean, certainly a whole host of environmental factors. There are chemical mutagens. There are there are radiation types of mutagens, and we do understand how they happen. They they change the probability that I'm telling you the we bring together the correct base through this hydrogen bonding, and everything in chemistry is sort of statistical, right? All these bonds are flipping around all the sure. time. And if you can perturb the system such that you might make an abnormal base pairing, you'll bring in an unconventional base. And that's a mutation. Once you've paired to a rare conformation of the partner, Hmm. Um, that's now locked in. You have no ability to change that anymore. So, so it really has to do with the, these, these hydrogen bonds, bonds at, yeah. at some point. That, that's yeah. where it comes from. Yes. Cool. And, 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 and as I said, there are four flavors. There are two big guys right. and two little guys. And a big guy always pairs with a little guy. And there's one set of the pairs that use two hydrogen bonds, and the other set use three hydrogen bonds. And those molecules that are ready to make two or three they go through fluctuations where, for rare conformations, they're ready to make three when they usually make two, or make two when they usually make three. And so they can bring in an abnormal partner. And so so, that's sort so of the somehow you might way. be able to enhance the rarity and you, or and whatever. You, and you can do that 
UV light does that to one specific right. pair. So, so things like that right. are are mutagens, and 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 that's been, and we've understood mutagenesis before we really understood the molecular basis of mutagenesis. We sort of knew the kinds of things that do cause right. mutations, and so so th those are conventional mutations. And again, I said the way we understand conventional mutations is really pretty simple. It's that instead of I told you that the DNA gets read three base pairs at a time, and instead of having the three base pairs that are normally there, you change one of the letters and you now spell a new amino acid. And that puts a different structure of the chemistry of the protein that then makes the protein fold abnormally. And, and most typically, the easiest examples to understand are where we break the machine so that it's a loss of function. And the extreme, to a geneticist, we like to have good anchor points. So if we delete a gene, if it's gone, then we know what that means. It's gone. It's not there. And that's going to guarantee that that gene has been lost. So that's going to be a loss of function. We, we've got some cases, though, that are really... Tr and so, so that's, that's the typical situation for all this whole host of diseases that I said are recessive diseases, where... Mom and dad have a healthy copy and a damaged copy of a gene, and by chance, it's a one out of four chance that the child gets both damaged copy, a damaged copy from mom, a damaged copy from dad. The class of diseases that are much trickier to understand and that are really important in the neuropsychiatric diseases are dominant diseases. And that's where the person has one perfectly good copy of the gene, but one mutant copy of the gene. And our, our understanding, and, so, and so, so there we're in a situation where the paradigm is that you've possibly had what's called a gain of function, where, where the mutant does something different from what the wild type copy does. Now, there are some examples where, and again, we know from these recessive diseases that the way that our genome has evolved, the way it's engineered, is that most of the time, most of the time, for almost all the proteins in our body, we have an excess of that protein. So that in, in a child, for instance, with the PKU, that one disease that I mentioned to you, um, if you have only half the amount of that enzyme, of that critical enzyme, you're completely normal. Your body is working exactly the same as it is in the normal. You just have an excess of the proteins available. Hmm. And you really have to cut down to about five to 10% of the normal level before you start seeing any deficiency. So how can it be that you have some disease where you eliminate one copy of a gene and you start seeing the disease? And that's tricky. We can, we can either call it what we call haploinsufficiency, that is having half the dose of the normal gene is not enough to get by on. And we only have rare examples where we really understand that very well. Um, and, and then the other is that, that the mutant protein has taken on some kind of a gained function. It's taken on some kind of a new activity. It might be a toxin activity right, right. that the native protein didn't have. So we, we still have, we, we really understand recessive pretty well. We know how losses really work. Gains are tricky and, and take a lot of 
Could, could it also be that somehow this protein, the mutant protein, as it were, interferes, so it eats the other protein, and so then you, you have a, a greater diminishment than you would normally have? That's a way of saying toxic, yes. I, that, yes, that's so a very toxic concrete example. Eat, okay. I don't know that it means eat. It means okay. it might complex <laughs> it. It might tie it up in some kind of an abnormal configuration. Right. Yeah. Uh, so so those, are, those, are all, those are all on a one-by-one -one basis of how we can understand right. those. So I want to let's go to the high level because I want to get yep. to the migraine stuff that, okay. that you did and, and have a, have a structural argument for people for really how we use genetics to uh, to understand and to eventually hopefully prevent or cure some of these diseases that we're we're mm -hmm. actually talking mm -hmm. about. So uh, here's my go. So tell me tell me uh, tell me when I when I go awry. Mm -hmm. So the the idea is that there are some physical mechanisms that are actually happening with people who suffer from various diseases that we don't have to specify right now what, sure. what it is. And the reason why I would suffer from a disease that you wouldn't suffer from is that there's something wrong. There's been some mutation with my DNA which, which interferes with the normal production of proteins which do their thing mm -hmm. in, in the right possible way. And so instead I don't produce those proteins or I produce mutant proteins or I do something weird with the proteins that are being produced from these particular mutations. And those proteins um, in, in this functional uh, perspective, those, those proteins then go ahead and do bad things or, or somehow interfere with the established mechanized structure of what's, right. what's going on. Um, and so, presumably, if I can find a way to isolate what's making those proteins um, uh, do what they're doing the wrong way, or if I can impede them from being produced to begin with, or, yes. or, or whatever, um, then I can solve the problem. I can't solve the problem, obviously, maybe not obviously, but it, I can't solve the problem in the way of going to the original source, which is to change the DNA of, of what this was to begin with, right. but I can identify what's actually going on, and then I can treat it from the secondary level based upon the, the, the derivative protein that's being produced. Is that, is that yeah, a fair? Yeah, I, I think that's a, and, and it also makes the very important point that the, you know, the reason that geneticists are interested in understanding the genetics is not to say, um, mom and dad, you made this problem in your child. That, that, sure. That's of no interest to anybody. The, 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 the real reason is, is that the genes give us a blueprint of how this disease came about. And that the better we can understand the molecular defect, the more likely it is that we can intervene. And, and, and that intervention is very unlikely to be at the level of replacing the gene, just as you said. Um, there, there certainly has been a wave of trying to do gene therapy, of replacing defective genes. Again, that's going to be very limited. There's going to be there's there's going to be certain places where you might be able to do that. I mean, the the hope had been that you could do that, like if a, if you need to have a certain gene expressed in blood, then you might be able to replace the cell in the blood and actually correct the broken gene. Um, but for many diseases you'd have to do it in every place in the right. body. And so, and so that becomes a, a daunting thing. You, sure. you know, so, so, so you're really not that likely uh, to be able to, to go in and fix the gene. And so you need to be somewhere quite close to the gene, um, but, but 
And that might be, if you're lucky, in the way, places where we've been most successful has been that it's the direct protein product of that gene. I think for some of the neurological diseases, we might need to be one step further, but we can't be a thousand steps away. We have to be still anchored very close to where the genomic information is telling us we need to intervene to fix what's been broken. And there have been a variety of ways of doing that. Um, so again, taking examples of some of the places where there have been successes are in some of these metabolic pathways, um, this whole class of diseases where an organelle, and we're going to talk about other organelles, but lysosomes break down proteins. We're always turning over all the proteins in our body. And, and up until very recently, we could make the diagnosis of some of these very specific diseases, but we couldn't do anything. But, but as the genetic you know, uh, revolution has moved forward, we're able to now make the missing protein in tissue culture, or in, for, I'm the, the lead on a clinical trial we're doing in, in, in one of these forms of storage disease where they actually engineered uh, a chicken cell to grow a chicken, the chicken lays an egg, you purify the egg white and make the protein out of that egg white that you give the kid to fix the kid. He's missing one protein, you give him the missing protein, and that's able to fix the, the disease. So, so there are ways where it's simple to deliver what's missing, but there are a lot of diseases where you, sure. you just can't deliver the protein product that's missing because it has to get inside the cell. A lot of things have to get across what we call the blood-brain barrier. The brain is a protected region. You can't put things into the vein it's and expect that it's yeah. going to go into the brain. That won't happen. And so, so that becomes a real trick for a lot of the disease of how you get things into the right place where they can actually do it. Again, drugs have proven to be very important, but again, the genes have been the link that lets us do that. In, in, in one sense, if you know the gene that causes a human disease, you suddenly know how to make an animal model of that human disease. You break the same gene in a mouse, and you've pretty much got the same disease. And I'll come back to some examples where that doesn't work, but that's been a very important reason why it's important to know the genes. So you know the genes, you can, you can make an animal model, you can know what the metabolic pathway is, you can know where you need to try to intervene. It's just the strongest way that we can make an argument of how diseases come about. So let's get to this idea of a concrete example uh, of what you did with migraines. Okay. So talk me through what you did because um, that, strikes me, that, that struck me as very illustrative of some of the processes that, that you're doing, sure. as well as the counterintuitive nature of the solution to this particular type of, uh, what is it called, familial hemiplegic migraines or something? Right, right. Um, so, which are not, as I understand it, extremely common, but that in a way oh, maybe makes it rare. easier. <laughs> yes, no. uh, anyway, so. and, and again, it's a, it's a geneticist paradigm where, where it, we've always said that by understanding the very rare genetic mutations that cause a disease pathophysiology, that's going to illustrate for us how the common diseases work. So while, while familial hemiplegic migraine, which is sort of my entry into these different neurological diseases, while that's very rare, it accounts for a tiny fraction of 1% of the people who have migraine. Migraine is very, very common. Migraine is the most common neurological disease. So that, that it's, it's well over 10% of the people are affected with migraine. So it's, it's, it's an extremely common disorder. 
um, whereas hemiplegic migraine is very, very rare. And hemiplegia just means um, a, a weakening on, one, on half of the body. That's basically what happens in that. Um, so it's a very specific kind of migraine, and it's one that is highly heritable. So you can follow it through families, and it behaves in this unusual pattern that I mentioned to you of dominant inheritance. And, and, and again, in a dominant inherited, that means if you catch one copy, so mom, and, mom or dad carries one normal and one abnormal gene, if they pass on the abnormal copy, you will show symptoms of the disease, and half of your kids will show symptoms of the disease, just statistically. So you can follow these dominant mutations through families, so you can get a very strong statistical signal that there's right. some specific gene that's doing this. And that's allowed us to map those genes, and MAP means, in the old days, used to mean finding the place on the chromosome. We don't need to do that anymore because we just read the DNA sequence now, so we cheat all the tools we use for mapping things and all this kind of stuff. So, so, so we're able to um, know um, uh, where that abnormality is coming from uh, on, on the chromosome, and then the question is, um, how did that make the disease? Well, you often can't tell by just looking at one gene, but it turns out that this familial hemiplegic migraine had three different genes. We were, able, we were involved in finding the second and third one, um, uh, but they all converged on a common kind of pathway. The first one was a calcium channel, and I'll explain what that is in a second. The second was a protein that I had worked on as a graduate student at Yale. Um, I was supposed to find mutations in that protein, I couldn't find them, making, making them in tissue culture. Okay. And it's called the sodium potassium ATPA. So it's, the, it's a pump that while we're sitting here, we're burning about one-third of all of our metabolic energy is going to feed that ion pump. And that ion pump sets up gradients across all the cells in our body that keeps potassium, a salt, rich inside of cells and keeps sodium outside of cells. We call it the sodium pump. And we use that first, we use that so that unlike plants, we didn't have to have rigid cell walls. Right. Because if you want to trap a molecule inside of a bag, <laughs> it will swell and burst. And that's why plants had to put cell walls. Animal cells decided that we want to keep DNA and protein inside this cell membrane. So if we're going to keep DNA and protein inside, we've got to pick somebody to keep outside. And the guy we're going to keep outside is sodium. So they pump sodium out. And that sets off what's called a double Donnan. So Donnan forces will cause the cells to swell. You offset those forces so now you don't pop. So now you can have cell motility and all this kind of stuff. So, so that was the first use. But then later it was used to create electrical excitability. And so that let you very rapidly pass messages across your cell membrane through what really is very much an electrical ionic current. Yeah. And that's how nerves work, that's right. how muscles work, that's how all of our sensory transduction works. So that's how we know about the outside world is through those kind of gradients. So, 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 so I was supposed to <laughs> find mutations. I found a bunch of related things that wound up being interesting ion transport mechanisms, but I couldn't change that. And I just felt it's so fundamental that you probably can't change it. You probably can't or you're dead 
and you and so and 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 and, and um you know it it was a mechanism again i, I told you in the early days we, we didn't know that mutations were going to be the same in animal cells as they were in bacteria and, right. and it was one of these things that were very very handy because the 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 the, the drug that could inhibit this very important pump had a different sense Wabane was its name, or digitalis. It's related to digitalis, one of the drugs that people who have heart disease often will take. Um, uh, 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 in, in, we could stick a mouse cell and a human cell together. That's how we did gene transfer in the old days. You just stuck two cells together. And you could kill off the human cell a thousand times easier with this drug because the mouse was resistant. The mouse pump was resistant. So you could always transfer mouse chromosomes into human cells because they had to catch the mouse. So, so it was a gimmick we had been using. Okay. I, I don't understand why the mouse one is more resistant. But, but, well, but, I, I don't know either. <laughs> Nobody knows. But it, but it just way more, it, it, has, it's, it doesn't get inhibited as okay. easily as in humans. So, so, so it was a gimmick we used in what was called somatic cell genetics. That, ages ago when we had very crude techniques to move genes around. So, so we thought we'd be able to understand this pump, but as I said, it wound up being very hard to get mutants. So suddenly, someone finds a mutation in hemiplegic migraine that hits my protein. <laughs> 25 years ago, I was supposed to be fighting mutants. And, and, and they didn't bother to look at why the protein was different. They didn't look at the function. They just said, here's the mutation, and this is what causes hemiplegia. I go, and so I put together a group of people who we were working with Rhoda Blaustein, a group of people at McGill University in Canada that really knew how to do some very sophisticated kinetic studies, and together we sort of were able to dissect mechanistically what happened. Right. How did the machine not work? Right. And that wound up being pretty important, and because then you could sort of see how that worked in the same kind of pathway that the first calcium channel worked, and then it also pointed out how the third hemiplegic migraine gene, this is a sodium channel, how that all worked together. They all, they're all involved in moving ions across the cell membrane. They're all involved in this electrical activity. And, and that was really important. When we found those three genes, we then looked, because if you look in textbooks, they still would talk about migraine as being, quote, a vascular right. headache. Well, the genes aren't even expressed in vascular cells. That, you go, well, how, you know, so clearly that's not the, um, common denominator of what migraine, even though I'm looking at a tiny fraction of a percent of the migraine, we better think about um, migraine in terms of the neurons, because that's the only place that our genes are being expressed. And more interesting than that is the fact that those same genes had different mutations in them that were found in epilepsies, in seizures. Hmm. And that argued that mechanistically, probably, what we call the genetic architecture, that, 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 that the, the, the way you make pathogenesis in seizures is probably similar to the way you make pathogenesis in migraine. They share some things in common. And that also made it make sense why empirically, because there aren't a lot of good drugs to treat neurological conditions, Empirically, a lot of the doctors who were taking care of migraines found that anti-seizure medications right. were, were useful. Yeah. 
And so sort of, well, you go, well, okay, so that kind of makes sense. It's not just a random, you know, it affects neurons, it, it's affecting the same kinds of mechanisms. So, so, so that started congealing, if you will, around, around a certain set of mechanisms of the disease. And then, and then we also saw that, in fact, there were some other hits on these, particularly the, the third mechanism, the sodium channel, um, had mutations associated with autism on it. And the autism mutations on that gene were similar to the migraine mutations on that gene. They were different from the mutations that were causing the seizures on that gene. So we started thinking more about how this mechanism folded into and, autism as well. And when you say similar to uh, the, the, the autism mechanisms. Right. What, where did that come from? Okay. Like, so we are going to use okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so, so, in, in, um, so these are transmembrane proteins. That means they go across the boundary of a cell. And um, we would find that the seizure mutations tended to occur right in the bilayer region, in the membrane region, whereas the migraine and autism mutations were in the little loops that dangled underneath the membrane. But how do you even know what an autism mutation is? I mean, how do you... Oh, I'm sorry. So they were, they were found in familiar... In, in, this is at the era when we did this. Right. And again, it's not that long ago, but the world is very different from then. Um, there were some small studies done in which people had found in a family uh, mutations in a certain gene. They had looked in a gene and they found that in that family that had this, now you could never be positive that if you find it in one family, that's the thing that's doing it. But if you find a couple of times that that happens. So this is widespread? No, no, no. It's, this is, it's a, it, it is a, it is a, let's just call it a case report. Somebody said that we found this there. Right. And you go, well, you know, this kind of makes sense. I, I will tell you that as we started doing these microarray studies, and, and, and again, having these microarray studies allowed us to carry out what are called genome-wide association studies. Now, I'll explain that, but that was, the, that was an era we went through for many years in the common diseases, trying to find places on chromosomes that were associated with different diseases. So you, would, you could do the design in a variety of different ways, but in the simplest explain, you take a number of control individuals and a number of individuals with a specific disease. And this could be things like autism, it could be schizophrenia, it could be um, uh, high blood pressure, uh, it could be height, it could be a variety of these more quantitative kind of traits. And you could try to find places on the chromosomes that were associated with the two different groups and try to distinguish them, say what, what, what best distinguishes the two. And, and that went through a variety of different ways of carrying out these kinds of studies. Then these kinds of signals became even clearer and clearer and clearer. It became very clear that we would get a number of sodium channels, calcium channels, and these kinds of mechanisms involved in what we now view as calcium homeostasis were being involved in these diseases that ranged from seizures, migraine, and some of the neuropsychiatric diseases. So, so they seem to share 
a family of pathways, if you will, right. that we didn't really completely understand, but we sort of got a flavor for who they might be. So this is presumably statistical argument. When you're exactly. It, it, and, and again, so, so, so it depends who you say. So I would say, yes, it's statistical, and so therefore it's a candidate. It's being promoted as more likely. But I really need, again, as a biophysicist, which I wear those two different hats, I'm in both eras, um, as a biophysicist, I really need to know how for it's doing this. I've got yeah. to see the mechanism yeah. behind it. So, so while it's very, but I'll just say that often the geneticists say, no, no, look, the statistics, this, that's it. It's statistically significant, so that's, that's the cause. Um, you can be tricked, <laughs> no matter all I'm saying. So, 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 and also, you can't do anything with it unless you're going to say, oh, I'm going to go fix the gene. You can't do anything with it unless you understand how it works. So I, I, so I think it's, it's critically important that we fully annotate these kinds of mutations. As I, as I said, when, when, when the group found a mutation in the sodium pump and they said that causes the disease, they go, well, how does that cause the disease, exactly. right? Well, this is something that I've always had a problem with, this, this, this conflation between statistical support and cause that people make. I mean, to Ooh. take, a, to take a, an obvious example, I, I, you hear this, 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 um, this notion that smoking causes cancer, right? And so I think, okay, smoking causes cancer, and why do we say this? Well, we have huge statistical evidence to support this idea that people who smoke are more likely to develop lung cancer and mm -hmm. so forth. But then I think, what about this little old lady, my grandmother smoked for 50 years and didn't develop lung. And to me, that's interesting because I don't doubt the statistics. I don't doubt the correlation that's there. But what I really want to know is the mechanism because presumably there was something going on with my grandmother in some weird way that didn't actually lead to her having yeah, cancer. And exactly. so that's, that's the insight that I think is super important. No one's, no one's denying the correlation. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming these guys have their statistics, right? They have right, zillions and right. zillions of numbers that are, that are there. But that's not a cause. That's just a way of finding the cause. Yeah, yeah. and I, I'll say, if, if, you, if you go into, in the old days, you don't see this so much anymore, but into a psych ward, um, patients who have schizophrenia all smoke. All smoke. I, we think they're self-medicating. Right. Um, uh, we don't think that the smoking's causing the schizophrenia, right? But but you but you but you, would, but you would see a very you'd see a very high <laughs> correlation. Right. It's actually intriguing that in autism, it's all it's you don't see smoking at all. Hmm. So there's so 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 there's something intriguing about that, but I don't know what that is. That's <laughs> way out in left field. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about autism a little bit, okay. and, and because you talked about how your research with migraines was leading through this calcium channel, and you right. started saying, hey, we've, I've seen that before. Someone's told me about right, something right, in right. autism, and you're, and you're moving in that particular direction. Um, but before we get into the work that you're doing and the work that you've done and the future uh, in terms of what you hope to achieve, um, let's try to clear up a few misconceptions that people have about sure. autism. Um, so, one uh, well, one misconception is this notion of uh, of an uh, environmental, a, a particular environmental factor or a particular environmental cause, uh, namely vaccines mm -hmm. that that came into the news some time ago. I don't know exactly where the dates are, but there certainly was a period when people thought, "Aha, we know we know what's causing autism." 
It's, uh, it's the fact that people, uh, some people have been vaccinated for a particular disease and that's a contributing factor, a principal factor, or whatever it is to autism. Now, my understanding is that there have been rigorous studies uh, where people Many. took this very, very seriously and these rigorous studies have shown zero correlation whatsoever between the vaccines and, um, and, and the development of autism. Um, is, is that right? That, that, that is absolutely true. And, and again, maybe I should just at least say what autism is. So autism is a, a clinical syndrome that has uh, really only a clinical diagnosis. So it, it's based on um, having very simplified speech, uh, repetitive behaviors. There's a constellation of clinical findings um, and, and, and uh, a, a loss of reciprocal social interaction. So it's it involves at a research grade a very elaborate set of tests, neuropsychiatric tests, but there's no blood test, there's no straightforward yes you have it, no you don't have it kind of picture. Now to be able to make the diagnosis, you can really only make the diagnosis once a child is two. They don't have enough phenotype, they don't have enough capabilities for you to be able to make that call. Now you might become suspicious of speech delay because most kids start speaking at about one year of age, they start using words. So you might worry in a child who's late in developing speech. And again, the uh, pediatric society has just come out with new guidelines of the kinds of ways you evaluate these kinds of things. But it just came out this this month recently. But so so that area is sort of changing. But but the um, the, the 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 situation in, in, in autism is that that there's a time window when you can make the diagnosis. It turns out that that time window uh, was the time window when kids are getting measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. And, and that timing of when you get that vaccine was dictated pretty much by the way our immune system matures. You can't effectively immunize a little baby and expect them to develop a response. So the kids are getting that vaccine around 18 months and the typical time when you start really being able to see the symptoms of autism is around that same window of time. Yeah. So it was the same thing. We were talking about correlations. Right. Um, in people's minds, they started making the correlation. Now, the, the quote, critical publication of Andrew Wakefield's was really criminal. I mean, it was a situation where a number of trial lawyers were sponsoring the trial, and people who were involved in the lawsuits were in the trial, and basically he got uh, you know, disbarred or whatever they would do in, in England. He was in England. Um, he, he was made to live in Texas. So he had to... Wow. He was made to live in Texas? <laughs> well, he had to leave <laughs> England. <laughs> he lives in Texas. I don't, know, I don't know that the judge wrote that down. But, but, but in any case, um, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, the paper disappeared. Lancet, the journal that published it, has removed it. It was so flawed in its design. And so so, so that, and, and, and as you said, many, 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 many studies have gone through looking at this in a very rigorous way. There is not a drop of evidence that the vaccines have anything to do with it. And the tragedy of this is, is that people have really forgotten what measles encephalitis looks like. And, um, and also pertussis, I mean whooping cough. So we, we now have a situation where in relatively affluent communities, people are electing not to immunize their children. And what's happening, therefore, is that 
an, a young infant winds up catching an infectious disease, maybe that disease won't severely damage your child that you didn't immunize, but maybe it will. Maybe your child will get measles encephalitis, and that is a horrible, horrible disease. And people have just forgotten what these diseases look like, and they think that the vaccinations are just, you know, something that's threatening their child, and that they're going to vaccinate their child to help this young infant in the society, but they may be jeopardizing their own child as well with a really horrible outcome. So, so it, it's something that really, really bothers me, and I know there are still people who strongly feel, um, not, not scientists, but I mean mom and dad out in the street who feel, who feel this, um, even families that have themselves elected not to vaccinate their children having their unvaccinated children coming down with autism and saying, at least I didn't vaccinate them. So that didn't, you know, it's like. Oh. Is that attributable to uh, a lack of understanding of, of the scientific process? Is it the fault of the media for playing these things up? Is it, uh, I'm just, I'm, I know you well, don't know. I'm, I'm no, I certainly don't know. I mean, there are a lot of Hollywood stars and fashion models and things like that that have kids affected with autism that speak about this and say, and the way our society works is, you know, if you're an actor, you have a lot of credibility in whatever you want to talk about, so it doesn't seem to matter. I really don't know. It's I mean, Hollywood's fault. It's Hollywood. No, no, no. I don't, <laughs> no, I really, I mean, I really. Can we send Hollywood uh, yeah. to Texas? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I just don't understand. I don't think that, that, that it's a situation where they don't understand. I. I think they hear all the sentences. They know how to look at sentences. I really don't understand, but I, but, but I know it's immutable. I mean, I know there are just, there are some folks that are so adamant about this that they don't want to hear your arguments. Well, of course, it's very difficult. I mean, one, one has to be sympathetic to, to the perspective of the parents. Uh, you have an autistic child. It's very, um, I'm sure it's very tempting to look for something or someone to blame for, for the circumstances. Sure. I can, that's perfectly human. Um, but anyway, so, so we've established that. Let's not, let's not beat that to yeah, death. Okay. Um, one, one other thing that I'd like to discuss before we get into the molecular uh, mechanisms or, or potential molecular yeah. mechanisms of, of autism is the, this notion of the prevalence of, of autism and, and whether or not it's, it's changing. Some people talk about an autism epidemic. Some people mm -hmm. say, no, 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 that's, that's just some epiphenomenon. It, it doesn't actually, it, yeah. it's not actually changing in terms of the numbers in our society. What is happening is that we are diagnosing people uh, better and better or at an earlier stage or what have you, yeah. or we, we're including within this notion of an autism spectrum disorder, within that spectrum we're including more and more people that, that previously weren't diagnosed as autistic, yeah. and so nothing is really changing in absolute terms, and other people say, yes, something is changing in absolute terms. What is your right. sense of the lay I, of the land? I, I, I'll say, initially, I was, I was quite skeptical that the numbers were changing, but I think it's pretty clear that the numbers really are changing. There absolutely is more recognition of the disease. Again, when I was an MD-PhD student at Yale, the chief of the hospital would meet with the MD-PhD students and take us onto the ward to see the most exotic case in-house that week. Um, and one week we were taken to see two brothers with autism. Now, if I did that today, my students would think I was nuts. 
because they can just walk down their street and they can see a kid with autism. So, so, so clearly something has really changed. I, I think there certainly is better recognition of the disease. Everybody now knows about the disease. It's not that you're likely to walk into a doctor's office and they don't know what autism is. That's highly improbable. There also is a driver in the way of the way, I would say the irrational way that services are provided by the state. If a child in California carries the diagnosis of autism, they are entitled to specific services. Now, that's good. Those services are warranted. But, but, but it gets to the weird point of you could have a more specific diagnosis on that child. So, for instance, the child might have Down syndrome, trisomy 21. We know exactly what that is. Uh, they are not entitled to those behavioral developmental they're not entitled to that unless they carry this extra diagnosis. They have to have autism as well? They have to, in order to be entitled to those services, they have to carry that specific diagnosis. So, so in a sense, that, and that, to me that's irrational, it doesn't make a lot of sense, um, but those services are absolutely course, needed in course. kids who have autism. Sure, I'm not, not advocating, I'm not, I'm not advocating no, getting rid obvious. of them. I, I'm just saying that you, you, you have a ratcheting up of, of, of the diagnosis because of the fact that you are entitled to certain services only if you carry that diagnosis. But that's only in California, right? Or is that, is that nationwide? I, I, don't, I don't know the world. Because if it's only in California, laws. you can filter it out. Statistical studies, yeah, I, presumably. I, I, so. I honestly don't, I don't know how the laws are written everywhere else. But I think that the connection of the diagnosis with having specific services provided um, winds up being winds up being a sure. driver that, that sure. increases. But, but but all that said, um, if you look at the numbers, are just frightening and are worldwide. And so there is something about what's going on that is increasing the frequency in a very real sense. And I don't think it's a broadening of the definition. I don't think it's this ratcheting up. I don't think it's the earlier uh, awareness. I think that there is at least a significant component that is an increased frequency now, is that some stress? Is that some, I, I don't know. I, what I do know is that in, in, even in very simple model, environment is infinitely complicated. Environment, what is environment? So to a geneticist, a geneticist calls the genome uh, a, a mapping function for the environment. So if you, if you know a person's genome and you have the environment, what you wind up seeing is how those two things interact with one another. I told you that example of a PKU. If you have a kid who has PKU, that is an absolute genetic disease, but if you change a specific component of the environment, sure. you wind up with an outcome that's very, very different. Um, so what is it? Is it an environmental disease? Is it a genetic disease? I mean, that, I'm just saying it's, it's how those two work together. But we can usually not figure out from all the complexity of what the environment is. We can't figure out what that thing is until we know the genetic network that it's working through. So again, that puts a priority on understanding the genes first. Even if you believe that the environment is the important, and I know that that epidemic can't be genetic. Genes do not change that fast. Sure. Okay. So, so, so since we know that the genes aren't changing that fast, um, it must be something that's, quote, External. environmental, sure. and whatever that is, we don't know, and I don't want to just start guessing. The best approach is first understand how the genes are working, 
and then you'll be able to find the environmental impact points. It'll fall out. It'll fall out directly from the way you start doing screens to look for drugs that can fix the problem. You will find things that exacerbate the problem. I don't mean in people, but I mean in in, 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 in a protein level, at a cellular level, at an animal model that level, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be set up, as you're setting up yourself to look for things that make the situation better, you will start having an understanding of the things that can make things worse. And sure. so then you'll be able to unwind. I think that's how it'll get unwound. Again, all the examples that I'm aware of where we've really figured out how the environment works, we had to know. <laughs> where where it is because there's just too many things that it could be. Of course. Well, I mean, again, it comes down to this idea of looking for a mechanism. I mean, right. if you look for you a mechanism, to, then you then you look at what enhances that, impedes that, exactly. all, all the rest of that. Right. So so what do we know so far, and 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 what do we know? Uh, what's our best guess in terms of what this mechanism might be, or one of the mechanisms, or, or right. one of a spectrum, or what have you? Well, I, 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 what I would say is so 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 from the genetics level. We know that the kinds of signals that we're seeing um, are often hitting these proteins that are involved in calcium signaling. Right. Our hypothesis is pretty strongly gravitated towards that mechanistically. That seems to sound very important. Some people will, will spin those words different ways. They'll use different words. They'll say it has to do with synaptic function. Synapses are where cells connect with one another. Um, yes, there's a lot of stuff that goes on, and that's where neurons connect with one another most typically is where the people are focusing. Um, uh, I believe that when they're looking at that level, they're looking too far away from where the primary genetic lesions are. They're, they're downstream, they're yeah. in the network. But th um, th that's what I wanted to ask you, because the obvious question is, how unique is this? Like, I mean, if this calcium uh, guy, <laughs> for yes. lack of Okay. <laughs> um, is, is, is somehow involved in every single model of every single neurological condition <laughs> you can imagine that I'm going to say, or, or maybe even, you know, if people yeah. have problems with their foot or something. Like, I mean, if, if it's so incredibly widespread, that's not terribly useful to me. So give me, give me an argument right. as to why that's correlated strongly with autism. I, the, the correlation with autism is, 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 is really strictly a, a genetic argument at this point. There's, there's no question about that. There are some that are really, really strong, compelling arguments from single gene hits. So if you, you could take a paradigm and say, well, what do we find when we take a bunch of controls and a bunch of right. kids with autism? What, what genes get hit? Right. And again, you can really only see those signals so remember, remember I told you how this thing evolved. We were able to count the chromosomes. We were able to identify each chromosome. We were able to identify about 700 spots on the chromosome. Then we could see 2 million now with the microarrays. Now, when we're doing whole sequencing, we're looking at all 6 billion spots. At the level of reading genomic sequence, now signals appear. At the level of looking at the microarrays, signals were not appearing. So, so uh, we didn't talk about this common disease, common variant. Is this a fair time to so it's a perfect throw that in? I mean, so, so, so when we were at this level, I mean, again, the, the microarrays weren't suddenly uh, two million. I mean, they were first a couple hundred, and then it quickly sure. ramped up to that. But once we got into the era of being able to run microarrays, that meant that it was 
possible in a cost-effective way to do a large cohort of controls and a large cohort of effectives and see what marks came up. Now, geneticists only have a signal if there's a difference. That is, if everybody has the same sure. DNA sequence, you can't watch anything move through the generations because it's all the same. Sure. You have to have letter A and letter B, and then you can watch who gets A and who gets B. So you've got to be able to have a dependable difference. And so on those microarrays, you have to pick the pieces of DNA to put on the microarray where 5% of the people would give you one flavor and 95% of the people would give you You wouldn't put a spot on that DNA where 0.001% of the people, where one in a million people had that because always the spot would have the same flavor because you might never get that one in a million person, exactly. right? So, so, so those arrays had to be biased towards only looking for common variations. They had to be, or you wouldn't be able to run by, a big enough study. By common, you're looking, like you say, 5%. 5%. That happened to be the kind of cutoff that people use. Now, what turned out is that nothing turned up, basically. It's not that it was a complete failure, but, these, but for looking at the common diseases, there were only a couple of successes. Some of the big successes were in retinal degeneration and things like that. So there were a couple of examples where they did find a common variant that accounted for the common disease. So that was the argument. The argument was that the mutations that make these common diseases will be very common in the population, and so we will be able to find them with these microarrays. Now, um, the damaging, so that, that's an okay hypothesis. It was the only kind of way you could run that test. The damaging part was to say, forget about the rare mutations that you geneticists normally know how to study and understand what they mean. Those are not related to these diseases. Forget you because can't. practically we can't actually do it. Well, so. you certainly couldn't do it this way. <laughs> right. But 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 it also said don't even try looking at them in model. Or I mean, it was it was a, a very anti-rare disease orientation. Well, they did these things and they turned up that they could explain in these common diseases maybe, certainly in autism, I'd say somewhere in the range of two to 5% of the genetic variation. We know that autism is a highly heritable disease. 90% or so of the impact of the disease comes through the genetic architecture from the genes. Um, so there's a lot of heritability to be found, and I'm not gonna sort out how we define heritability, but, but, but the genes that you're able to follow that have common variants those common variants only account for a tiny sliver of that. That means something else is causing it. Right. And so, now, now, okay, so, so, so just a question. So as I'm listening to you say this, it seems that's a very reasonable hypothesis. And the reason why that hypothesis might be wrong, I would speculate, is that things are just much more complicated than we had. That, 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 that would be what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, okay, if we can isolate exactly what the mutations are, if there are some common mutations that are, that are, that are prevalent throughout and they all lead to the same common result, right. that would be great. But there clearly is a result that's going on out there. There are all these people that have sure. autism. And so what's probably going on is that they don't all share the same types of mutations. They all have all different mutations all over the place, and it's a real mess and, to be and, able to and do. That, that is, now that we moved on to the level of reading genomic information, that in fact is what's happening, is that there's huge amounts of heterogeneity that people are getting hits in 
different dis disease-causing genes, and that each of the genes only contribute a small increment right. of the risk. And it's probably not simply additive, but it's probably what a geneticist would call epistatic. That means there are complicated interactions, that if you break one gene, you're okay. If you break the other gene, you're okay. You break them both, There's and you're some dead. Emergent. So, 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 so it seems to me like the, an analogy would be to say, uh, I mean, let me start again. It seems to me that there's, because this is my background or my perspective, there's something going on, and I believe there's some law-like explanation for what's actually happening. But maybe it's a super, super complicated law-like explanation. Mm -hmm. So you need to take into account, say you have an equation with a thousand different variables, right? Yes. And so you need to understand not only what the variables are, but their coefficients and how they interact and blah, blah, blah. So there's a law somewhere that, that involves these thousand variables. That's incredibly complicated to try to figure yes. out. Um, but we can at least eliminate the fact that we have a law with one variable or two yes, variables. Yes, exactly. And I, th and I think that's a, uh, that's a very powerful way to have said it. I've not, I've not heard it said that way. But, 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 but I think that that is, that is clear. And it also is the reason that I'm... So we, we, we know there are at least many hundred, and some would say even more than a thousand, genetic loci, places on the chromosome that contribute towards the risk of autism. Now, the problem with that is that um, uh, uh, autism, therefore, becomes very much like cancer. That's pretty much what the genetic architecture of cancer is, that, 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 that even though two people have thyroid cancer, if you read the DNA in their tumor, they're all, they'll, be diff, they'll be quite different from one another. So, so we've really come to understand cancer as this kind of a very complicated genetic architecture. You may have some very important common drivers that push in a big way towards a certain kind of cancer, things like some of the breast cancer genes and so on. Yeah. But, but you... Um, but, but, but the way that that cancer evolved has involved a whole variety of different changes. We're starting to work this out. I, I don't think it's insoluble, but, but it means that um, how are you going to do a study when if you take one child with autism, they're really a different disease than the other child with autism. And, and, and that's the problem. It's this, heterogeneity, that if there are all these different factors with these different coefficients that you're talking about, somebody is put together quite different from one sure. another. Um, our approach in our center is to try to comprehensively not only genotype the people, but also comprehensively phenotype. And by phenotype, I mean understand functionality at a whole variety of different levels. We want to understand functionality at the level of single cells, functionality at the level of single neurons, functionality at the level of how the neurons talk to one another. And not for everybody with autism, but for each kid, for an individual kid whose genomic sequence you know, you want to see all those steps all the way up to EEGs and behavioral tests, how all of these functions are tied together. I think we need that kind of annotation in order to be able to understand. And then you can start looking then at commonalities you, at some level on right, top of right. all that. And, and, and again, what that's going to do is maybe it will let us separate out autism type 1, 2, 3, 4. It might give us some kind, just like in the way that we do um, breast cancer, somebody will be 
breast cancer, HER2 new positive, some will be breast cancer, HER2 new negative. I'm just using these as words, but they're markers, they're biomarkers, and we do, that's something we don't have in autism. We don't have any objective biomarkers. The only kind of objective tests we have are these things way out at the behavioral levels. And the problem with that is, is that we know trying to make medications, trying to treat at the level of the behavioral level fails. That's why all the big drug companies have pulled their neuropsych drug discovery units. They've closed them down. Many scientists let go. Um, Pfizer, a whole variety of these units have been closed down because of the failure of a behavioral assay to reproduce something that can cure human disease. You're so far away from the genes at right. that point that the likelihood that you're going to be able to similarly replicate the problem is just vanishingly improbable. And that's why we think we have to be anchored. Of course you want to test that the behavior gets better, but you want to know sure. you're on the right route towards sure. getting there. There's probably too many ways to get at these complicated And, and, and again, the, the analogy, it seems to me, is, is what you were talking about before with migraines, right? That, that you can actually trace a path down to the genetic level. And until you do that, it's awfully hard to imagine what sort of drug you could develop. And, and again, I think it's important to count on these very powerful mutations, again, if for most people it takes a dozen mutations together with some environmental stressor to push them to the disease, easier to chase the pathway in an individual where having one mutation, with or without the environment, one, one mutation is enough to push them towards that disease so you can understand what pathway is being perturbed. It's not going to sample everything, but it's at least going to give you a rough outline of how one might make that process happen. Um, it gives you a, a, a cartoon of pathogenesis, if you will. So, so I think that that's really a, 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 a very important starting point. So yeah. where are we now? So we've well, been, you've been doing this for how long and, <laughs> and, and, and how much how much further, uh, I, I'm not asking you for yeah. <laughs> timeline, well, but you can no, buy I mean, a drug off the shelf, but, well, but, no, but, but what's your best guess in terms of the way things have been moving forwards and, and where, well, first of all, where are we now? Let's just start there. Where we are now is, is, is we certainly don't know all the genetic components that go into the disease, and we certainly don't know all the mechanisms that are involved. But, and this is the argument that I made to the Thompson Family Foundation when they really put together entrepreneurial, an entrepreneurial investment of philanthropy in our center. Um, they thought that our concept made sense, and that was that, sure, we don't know every, but, but we know enough now genetically to be able to begin targeting a pathway that does involve the disease process of autism. And it would be wrong to not now start moving on that, because first, a failure of the drug companies to be doing it. They've been closing down these kinds of units. And because we think we do have a paradigm that makes a lot of sense. It's a very compelling and different paradigm to build up from this cellular level to be able to do this. And so I don't want to wait until we have found all the genes that are involved. I think sure. we got plenty. We can put them together. We can see a very compelling story for how this calcium signaling is involved. We know how to intervene in these kinds of things. We know how to make 
molecules that play a role in how these kinds of signals are involved. We have very, very sophisticated technology. We're blessed at this university to have wonderful scientists with huge expertise in looking at these things. What we need to do is to get those individuals who are working on a variety of different problems to all share their expertise aligned to autism and we suddenly have a very powerful discovery pathway that takes us all the way back to the genes, all the way up to the human behavior. And they were willing to invest in that. And we said, this is something we think we have a shot at aggressively approaching and trying to cure. That's what the plan is, that we'll get things into clinical trials for, for doing this. And again, a paradigm that was really important for me that seems completely unrelated has to do with the new discovery that happened in cystic fibrosis. Uh, luckily, that whole process was led by a, someone who had gone through our training program, and, he, and he's done a brilliant job of really curing cystic fibrosis, but to do it in a completely different way than we normally did. Yeah. The, 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 just like with autism, it's hard to know what the animal theme there, there was no animal model of cystic fibrosis. If you knocked out, and so cystic fibrosis is just one gene. I don't mean to say that the complexity of cystic fibrosis is the same as autism, but, but, but if you changed that gene in a mouse, you could see things that told you that you broke the cystic fibrosis, that they were, but they wouldn't show you the clinical disease that affected humans. So you couldn't make a clinical trial based on animal model data. Well, they went back and they said, we're just going to show you that we can cure a specific broken molecule in the humans. We're going to cure that broken molecule. So go right to the protein. Then. We're going to go right to the human. We're not going to give you an animal. We're going to go right and we're going to fix that human cell. And we're going to take one mutation that we really understand very well. There's 2,000 mutations that lead to cystic fibrosis. We're going to pick one. It's a rare one. It's not the common mutation that causes it. But we're going to, we're going to have a molecule that we can screen, and they screen thousands and thousands of molecules because they could do it at a cellular level. They're all kind of automated ways of looking for this. And they were able to get a molecule that fixed that, and they were able to take that to clinical trials to the FDA. Now that's a paradigm shift because for years and years and years... You needed the animal... They, they, they struggled trying to get an animal model, and suddenly, no, we can go to clinical trials without having that. We can deal with the relevant lesion in a human it also was a paradigm shift in terms of the fact that they were able to get this idea of entrepreneurial philanthropy. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation sponsored them trying to do this. Cystic Fibrosis used to be this kind of thing of let's just do a bunch of research around this. They, said, they finally said, you know, we really want to fix the disease. Yeah. We're, not, we're not that interested in learning a lot about how, how things work. So, so, so I, th I, I think it was really... Um, and, and, and it got FDA approved very, very, very quickly, and it's been zooming along. And so it clinically targets not the symptoms of the disease, but it targets the cause of it. And that's, and that's what I think we have a window. The genetics in autism gives us a window into the cause. And we have some very strong molecular players, and those are the kind of things that I think we can, that we can target and should be trying to target to try to fix the disorder. And I would have thought that, um, well, let me just back up and ask when this happened, the cystic fibrosis breakthrough. Oh, 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 it's only a couple, uh, two or three years ago. Okay. And, so, yeah, and, and it, it's been in New England Journal. I mean, it's, it's been a big breakthrough, and there was just, there was just a very recent um, 
triumph, if you will, where they, where, where they were able to take it and apply it to the common mutation in cystic fibrosis. That's what I was going to ask. So it's, it's, it's been in the news, I would say maybe three months ago was a, a big splash in the news again. But, but I think but the first set of trials goes back maybe three years at the most. Okay. So, but it's in humans now. It's being treated. It's an FDA-approved drug in humans. So you really can do this. So that's, that's remarkable um, in terms of what's been accomplished. It's also remarkable in terms of, as you say, the, the paradigm shift from the FDA's perspective. But I would think that somewhere along the line, the drug companies would say, oh, hey, look, this is a different way that people are actually doing this. And so they would be enthusiastic about the sort of work that you're doing by analogy, if nothing else. Has there, has there been a uh, trickle-down effect? or uh, Maybe trickle-down well, effect has a bad name. But, yeah, but yeah. Has, has, there, has there been a sense that people are saying, oh, you're doing, you're trying to do to autism what, what these guys did to cystic fibrosis, you know, roughly at a schematic level. Sure, there's a lot more complexity. Sure, there are a lot more genes at play. Sure, there's all the rest of this. But, but you now have a precedent, right, sure. in terms of, of efficacy. Yeah. Well, I'd say about two years ago, Roche invited about 50 scientists from around the world to come to a meeting uh, at their castle in Switzerland, um, to, to, to a meeting to try to discuss whether or not there was enough genetic information to move forward towards autism. At the end, they concluded that there was. But I was actually surprised, because at that point, we already knew this first cystic fibrosis thing had happened. And I was actually surprised. That one, so they, they broke us up in different kinds of discussion. Only a handful of the people who were there were aware of that. I mean, because it's it's, if you're in, why would you know about cystic fibrosis if you're in a neuropsych field? So I was just surprised how many people weren't aware of that. Right. And so whereas, whereas for me, it was like a bolt of lightning that it was, I'm not sure how many people believe there's any connection between the two at all. I mean, for me, it's a very important. Well, structurally, there's obviously a connection based upon your approach. It seems to me. To me, to me, but again, I, my approach isn't necessarily what Okay, so let, let, let's talk a little bit about that. So let's talk about what a skeptic would say. So let's talk about somebody who is an expert in your field who would say, you know, you're, you're misguided, you're, you're deluded. That's not, the right, that's not the right way to look at things. What would their argument be? Well, their argument would be, oh, well, cystic fibrosis is easy. You know you've got one gene. Well, you know, they had that gene for a long time. No, 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 I'm asking their argument. Okay, no, so no, I know, <laughs> but I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you know, I mean, yeah, it's got one gene. But the point is you have to know how to approach right. it. You have to know how to fix it. Right. And so, but that would be the argument. The argument would be one on, yeah, the methodology works, but, but that's, it's much that's more so simplistic, and, yeah. so, and so you can isolate it. There's, and and would, would the argument also be there's no way you're going to isolate the, the panoply or higher-order number of genes in, in autism, or we'll wait until you do, or what, what would they no, say? And I, and I, I don't think that we do need to do that. I think, I think there are two important steps. One, one we, we have a paper in preparation that we're, we're going to be doing. I'm not going to talk about the specifics of it, but, 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 but there are important correlations with diseases like the mitochondrial diseases, which, again, I wound up seeing a lot of kids who had mitochondrial disease. That was, again, one of my, what used to be a very disconnected um, part of my life was seeing these kids with mitochondrial disease, but they've now kind of converged together. As we've come to understand more about mm, what roles mitochondria are playing in the cells, they play a critical role in calcium signaling. And, and I believe now that a lot of the lesions that we saw in mitochondrial disease that contributed to autism are, in fact, sharing mechanistically this whole problem right. in calcium homeostasis. I think that message 
is becoming clearer and clearer. But, 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 but for being able to handle these mitochondrial diseases, it was the same problem. Very, very difficult diagnostic situation. Um, when we started being able to do skin biopsies, when we started being able to do biopsies on these kids and actually being able to measure things at a cellular level, um, we, we were able to sort them into different categories. We were able to understand the diseases. So I believe that's going to be very important, to be able to get some functional biomarker. And again, I, I think that'll become critical for helping make diagnosis and for sorting people into people who have autism and this biomarker and those who have autism and don't have this biomarker. That lets you get a more coherent group of people who will be going into clinical trials and all this kind of stuff. So you sort of be trying to make things more co coherent. Right. And, 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 and it, it, it also has a very important implication for uh, for the discovery process, because the thing that you're able to use as a biomarker winds up be, being able, potentially, to be the thing that you're able to use to screen for drugs that fix that biomarker situation, or to screen for things that make that biomarker situation worse, which sure. might be your environmental challenge and sure. things like that. So, so I think, it'd be, I think it's, it's, it's a really important step. And a lot of people believe that, oh, the place to look is in how the wiring diagram in the brain happens. Well, you know, we don't do brain biopsies. You don't, you don't do that. Mom doesn't sign off on that kind of a thing very often. So we right. don't, so, so, so that's not going to happen. And, and, if, and if that's the place where we need to find the difference, it's going to be a real tough job. But that could be an drugs. effect, right? I mean, that, that, that could be an that effect from this down, exactly. downstream. That's the, that, I think it's too far away. I, I, I'm sure that all that is found. And again, so, so that most of the arguments that have been made in model systems are at the level of doing brain slices and looking at brains and how brain. I believe there's a real value at looking at a simpler core level before you get to the complexity of the brain, if we're going to have any success in being able to, and as I said, that's the we, we don't it. have that's to, that's we, the biophysics part of it. Right, we, we, we don't have to find all of the genes, we have to find an actionable right. gene, an actionable pathway, and I think that's where I think the calcium story is telling us that. It's also important in that it's quite similar to the mechanisms that are involved in cystic fibrosis. It sounds a million miles apart. One's in epithelia and one's in nerves, but, 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 but it's also important to recognize that you know, autism isn't only a neurological condition. I mean, the kids have a multi-system disease. It's something geneticists are used to. We're used to the fact that gene defects cause pleiotrophy. They cause a lot of, a lot of different uh, problems in different tissues. We run into that all the time, but I would say virtually every kid who has autism has some problems with their GI tract. Uh, lots of them have really? problems with their immune functions. And so, you know, if you think that you're going to be able to solve the problem of autism just by looking at synapses in a specific region of the brain, well, what about, the what about all this other stuff? You know, so 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 I, again, it's appealing to me to be looking at a very fundamental mechanism as being involved. That, then your other question is, you know, if it's involved in everything, what's the well? I mean, so again, going back to these association studies, and what what is found is that you know our eye 
isn't so good at calling these. We, we don't know how to make, we don't know how to name diseases, okay? And so, 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 so what we find is that the genetic architecture, genes involved in bipolar disease, what used to be called manic depressive disease, bipolar disease type one, are very similar to the genes that are involved in schizophrenia. Now, five years ago, certainly 10 years ago, psychiatric geneticists would box one another or the fact that you know, you, they're, they, those diseases have nothing to do with one another, that you're dirtying this. Well, once we start doing the gene, we start seeing that the genes are exactly the same. That what our eye calls manic depressive disease and schizophrenia is probably not fundamentally different from one another. It's probably something there. And autism is in that same cluster, the same guys. So I, I, I just say, it's not that I don't know the names of the different neuropsychiatric diseases, I just think that what you wind up with is, and again, it's, ba it's based a lot on, on is, a, is, is, a, is, a, is a hyperexcitable neuron. It's that kind of a problem. Um, the analogy, the reason I'm, I use that hyperexcitability is that um, we really understand these kinds of diseases in the heart it causes a very specific kind of arrhythmia in the heart. And, and it had been a paradigm I had been using in review articles, trying to explain the kinds of things that I'm looking at. I've been using this long QT syndrome. In the first review that I wrote, I said, it's curious that we don't see this one kind of calcium channel ever mutated. It must be lethal, that if you break that, you don't ever see it. Well, suddenly, a mutation in that calcium channel of the heart is found to cause this arrhythmia, it's called long QT, and 80% of the kids who have that mutation have autism. So, so we really, we have 12 genes, all are these calcium ion channel genes that cause this specific kind of arrhythmia in the heart. It's a lethal arrhythmia, so it stands out. They're all dominant, it stands out. You can follow it in families. And sure enough, this one mutation, rare, there's only been a handful of cases, it's called Timothy syndrome. Uh, when you mutate it, you get the rhythm in the heart that we understand because we know all the players and we know how heart, heart's simple compared to the brain. Cardiologists won't like that. But, um, uh, uh, so mechanistically, we really know what this thing is doing because whenever you get this abnormal heart rhythm, with this mutation, you're also having a highly penetrant lesion in how your neurons are working that give you what looks like autism. And that's, to me, one of the most powerful um, messages in the autism story. Um, and and, and um, has to make us believe that, well, we don't need to, well, we don't, this doesn't necessarily tell us all the ways you can make autism, it at least tells you a way to get there. Sure, it's a correlate. It's a very, very strong correlation. Right. Yes. Um, wow, that's. Uh, that's yeah. No, cool. I mean it's it, it's <laughs> it's a wow kind of thing. I mean, yes, I, I could talk a lot more about that lesion, but it's a, yeah. I mean, it's it's it, it, it's it's it, it, it's a real touchstone for people who who look at biophys biophysical signaling mechanisms to have such a highly penetrant that a genetic means highly penetrant means if you catch that mutation you're going to show the manifestations of that mutation. Um, and to have a mechanism that we understand very well, like this arrhythmia, 
And you can only break this channel in a couple of ways and get this to happen. It's, it's really remarkable. So, so it, it's quite a specific kind of lesion. And I think it's going it, to, as I said, it's a, a very powerful model of how one has right. to move forward for but these kind of things. Methodologically, it's, uh, it also shows why it's important to look broadly. I mean, you never would have imagined that you would have some correlation between no. manifestations in terms of a heart arrhythmia. And, and this. So, right. so that methodologically, that also shows that you have to have a perhaps a different perspective when you're approaching. You need certain. to have a broad, broad perspective <laughs> on autism. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's what's very powerful. What our center is trying to do is we're bringing together people. We have 60 different investigators involved who really span the gamut and, and really have expertise in a variety of different places, but when you ask them, just use what you're doing and think about autism with that, it becomes a very compelling platform, discovery platform that I think is Are there other, other centers that are doing something similar? Or how, how unique are you guys at, at, at CART? I think that we're very unique. I, I mean, people don't necessarily tell you everything that they're doing, but, but by and large, typical autism centers um, are based sort of on the NIH idea that you're just going to do a lot of good science. Um, uh, again, the idea of having uh, uh, the Thompson Foundation give us a strong mandate is a way of sort of pulling people together. We're able to seed um, cooperation. I mean, because faculty don't usually do things like that, right? right? And I mean, and an industry couldn't really build up that strong of a platform. To, to be able to hire enough people to build that kind of a strong platform would take a very long time. So um, I think what we're doing is unique. Certainly when we were starting to do it, it was unique. Um, maybe other people <laughs> start doing it. Sure. I don't know. Sure. I don't know. Um, a question about, um, I just lost my train of thought. Um, it's gone. Completely, my, my, my train is completely derailed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, this hasn't happened for a while. So um, let's, as, as he struggles to say something uh, reasonably intelligent, let, let's, let's move to, all oh, right, I remember what I was going to say. I was going to talk about what, what we had talked about a little bit earlier which was some of the sociological reactions to this, uh, which you may or may not feel comfortable yeah, talking about. Sure. But um, there is a prevailing view, as you told me, uh, among some members of the, of the community, that looking at autism as a disease is actually not what should be done. One should, or, or, or looking at it as something to be cured. It is, right. is, is not the right approach. Right. Uh, is not the right approach insofar as, as, as perhaps it's demeaning to people and, and one should look at it as, as just part of the variation of the human experience and, and we should uh, look at it uh, from, from that perspective and we should adopt different views in accordance with that overall philosophical framework, uh, which is which is, as I understand it, not your view. It would certainly not be my view. Uh, it is not my view, yeah. as it happens. But, um, but on the other hand, one has to be sensitive to people who, who do have right. that view. And so uh, perhaps you can tell me a little yeah, bit more Yeah, I mean, about it, that. it's a message that we heard from Tom Insel, who's the director of the NIMH. Uh, we had an autism summit in California recently, and he spoke to us. And, and, um, and it's something that I certainly have encountered. I mean, inevitably, whenever I give a public lecture, there will be a couple of letters in the newspaper saying, how dare Dr. Gargas propose to cure 
autism. Why make me like everybody else? I'm fine the way I am. Um, and I, I mean, I think there's a, there, there's, a, there's a variety of issues around it. I mean, one is that we know the costs to society in the U.S. of autism is well in excess of $130 billion a year. I mean, it's a, it's a, major, um, uh, it's a major societal issue. Uh, there are lots and lots and lots, and nobody's ever going to force somebody to do something. I mean, I think the idea of being able to try to come up with medications that could ameliorate the disease makes sense. I don't think anybody's going to be mandating making people be treated. But, 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 but um, what, what Dr. Insull said is that you know, they've had uh, legislation where they were trying to get funding for, for autism projects where that, where that was killed off by this contingent, by the contingent, by the contingent saying, um, you know, don't do that. Uh, it's a civil rights issue. It's a civil rights issue. Um, That's a uh, civil rights issue. So I'm not an expert in civil rights, nor do I pretend to be. But, oh, but I'm again, sure not. I could, uh, but I could imagine if, if we did find ourselves in a situation where there was a cure for autism, uh, the civil rights aspect would be, or, or there was some medication that would vastly ameliorate the symptoms, or however you want to use that, whatever language you want to put around that, that would be very efficacious. Uh, the civil rights aspect presumably wouldn't impinge on whether or not people would have to use it. That's a whole different issue. Right? Sure. If you had this pill, it's just like if I, if I have a headache, well, there's Advil at the pharmacy, and it's there, and I can elect to take the Advil or I cannot take the Advil. Yeah. I, 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 again, I, I, I really can't fully appreciate the whole spectrum of this. I, I know that it's something as geneticists that we've encountered in Little People of America. It's something that... What used to be called different kinds of short-limbed dwarfism syndromes, and it's something that we encounter in the deaf community and right. a number of the hereditary hearing disorders. Um, you know, I mean, where where you will wind up with a situation where, I mean, as a example, um, a, a couple that has um, achondroplasia, the common um, a, a form of short-limbed dwarfism. Um, will elect to terminate a normal pregnancy because that's not what they would like. They'd like to have another child who has a contraplasia. So you can wind up in things that are way above my pay scale. I just can't figure out how to sort all these kinds of things out. Um, but I feel that um, autism is something that warrants um, are trying to, 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 to intervene. And I think to use the word trying to cure autism is not an appropriate situation. And I try to think about the sensitivities of, um, of the community, but I can't see that that justifies us stopping trying to get sure. to the bottom of this. Sure. So on the policy side, going uh, above your your current responsibilities uh, and expertise, because I like to push people out of their comfort zone. If you were president of the United States, <laughs> uh, what sorts of things might you do or might you do better to lay the groundwork for uh, a, 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 your best shot at a, at a, faster, a, a faster road towards 
reaching some of these uh, conclusions that you hope to reach? Wow. <laughs> no one's ever asked me that before. Um, you know, I mean, things that have been very important are the, the FDA ha has become quite responsive. I mean, specifically in the context of what are called rare diseases. So, so there are mechanisms to get clinical trials. And this is something, again, that's guided us in terms of trying to decide what's feasible. Because now, for, for rare diseases, which a lot of the subtypes of autism that I've described to you fit under, um, you can do a small proof of concept clinical trial, which is like an investigator-initiated clinical trial. That's something that we intend to use. Now, it's not good enough to get you FDA approval, but what it can do with a relatively modest sample size that could be affordable in an academic, it can only be done in an academic institute. Drug companies can't use this mechanism. But, but if you get something that's promising, now you can find a partner in the drug company. The drug companies aren't going to partner with you until you can sort of show them that you have some kinds of efficacies. So, so they are trying to be responsive to these kinds of things. I think you know, a lot of the stuff that we get just completely burdened with, I mean, just being able to get all of the, what's called IRB, all of the institutional review board things in order to carry out our clinical trials takes like a year. It takes a long time to go through all those hoops. So it would be nice to expedite. So, so it would be nice to expedite. It would be nice to find a simpler mechanism to make what's an approval process at one institution work in another institution. Do you have to reinvent the wheel at every place you do this? So, 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 so a lot of the bureaucratic kinds of things are, I mean, they recognize, the NIH and the FDA working together recognize that these are problems. And I think they're, they, I, I, nobody wants to slow this down. I mean, Dr. Collins, and I, I, we, we were fellows together at Yale at the same time, and I know he is a smart guy and he knows he wants to fix diseases. Um, you know, I think, I think that that's, uh, uh, nobody's trying to make it harder. They're trying to make it easier. Um, you, you've got to do it in an ethically sensitive kind of way. I mean, another thing that I think, you know, in some of the initiatives that are being pushed is this whole idea about, you know, is calcium involved in everything? I mean, the idea of, we've never been naming diseases the right way. We've been using these make-believe things, thinking we know what the mechanism is. We should be working towards naming the diseases after the gene basis. I mean, and that's what we did in bacteria a long time ago. We didn't bother naming the bacteria after how they looked. We named them after the gene that they had. And so if we start talking about diseases with a clearer um, mechanistic view. As opposed that, to that, behavioral at the that, other that, end. That might, that might huh. simplify a lot of things. Not just for behavior, things like hypertension, things, a whole host of diseases that have these very complicated architectures. If we start calling them the way we call cancers a HER2 new positive, if we start using those kinds of gene-based markers to define what the disease is, we may come closer to having coherent studies. Now, obviously, if you, if you have a coherent study, it's more likely that a clinical trial will succeed because, again, part of the big problems in the clinical trials are they get all the way up to a human trial and then the whole thing falls apart, doesn't work. And that costs hundreds of millions of dollars to have a trial that fails. So you can't do a lot of those. So what you really don't want is you don't want a 
quote, dirty sample. You don't want to be mixing apples and oranges and bananas and grapefruits. You want to be comparing bananas to bananas, right? You want to, be, you want to make sure that you're looking at a similar disease when you're doing a clinical trial to see if your medication is helping those people. And so I think it's going to help in, in, in those regards as well. So, so um, obviously, everybody would say, oh, more money, more continued support. Um, the, you know, the NIH budget has been unbelievably savaged through the years. It's, it's, it's the pay lines are discouraging to trainees. They're discouraging to people who are in the field. They're making people do things in completely different ways. Um, when I was on study sections, you know, you could expect that the pay line would be 25%, so that if you look at the grants that come in, a quarter of them would wind up getting funded. Now the pay lines are down around 5-6%. I mean, it's like, am I really going to do this, or am I going to go and buy a lottery ticket somewhere and try to, you know, so, so it's, it's and, and what that's also driven is it's driven them towards ultra-conservative approaches. Like, if you know uh, that only a tiny sliver of the grants are going to get through, you're not going to take a flyer on somebody who has a very different idea. You're going to take the most conservative, putting one brick on top of another kind of approach, and that isn't going to take you anywhere. So I, I think it's changed the psychology behind how the grants process works. Where is that money going to come from? I have no idea. I mean, but, but, but that's always an answer that people give, and everybody thinks it's a very self-serving kind of answer. To for a scientist to say, oh, you should give more money. What would you do with more money? Well, if you had more money, if, if, I, could, if I could triple your budget here, would you be hiring more people? Would you, would you be conducting more extensive experiments? You, would you have an answer like, like that in terms of what you, what you... No, but roughly. I don't mean like a line-item budget or anything like that, but I mean, is there a clear sense of, gosh, if I only had more funds, I could do this specific experiment and that specific experiment and this... Uh, yes. I mean, I think, I, as I said, I think the psychology of the funding has been bad in two ways. One is it's made it harder for us to have a group of graduate students, a group of postdocs that are working on a project, because that you really can build up a very different... Now, we've tried to do it by putting together a center where we have many different groups working together. We try to simulate that kind of thing, but I think at each individual investigator's uh, level, we sh shouldn't be closing the doors to, to these folks. If you're closing the door because you don't have enough money to pay them today, and they're not that interested in doing what you want to pay them to do today because they say, holy cow, how am I going to compete to be in a position to do this in five years? So. I think it changes the psychology of the whole field and everything like that. So I don't know how, I, and I would never want to overpromise. Say, if you gave us more money, we would fix this now. Sure, sure, I, no, no, no. But I'm just, I'm just asking what, what specifically you would do. But anyway, you, you, you answered that. Um, big time speculation. Now, it's my, it's my penultimate oh question. My penultimate question is. Um, and I'm not going to hold you accountable to this, but I want, an, I want an, a number of years, um, not just an order of magnitude, because that's cheating. I, I want some kind of number of years where, before we're going to have some kind of a breakthrough that's analogous to the cystic fibrosis breakthrough. For sure in five years. For sure in five years. I'm hopeful in three years. No, no, I'm, I, but I mean at the level of a clinical trial. I don't yeah, yeah, mean yeah. 
I don't mean a bottle on the market shelf. No, 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 that's fine. That's clinical trial is still a pretty big, big break. Yes, I think a successful clinical trial in three to five years is not unreasonable. And that's sort of the ballpark of what we had promised, that I think that that's very reasonable. It's not crazy. I don't think it's crazy. Wow. But that's just me. <laughs> well, I'm talking to you. I can't, I can't, I can't expect you to answer I, for I don't, else. I don't believe that, that if you sampled everybody who's working in autism, they would tell you that. No, I'm sure they won't. And it's my job to go and sample other people. But I'm talking to you, and okay. I wanted to hear I wanted to hear yeah. what... Uh, I don't think that that's an inappropriate window. Anything else? Anything I've missed? Anything you want to no. bring up? No. You've covered a lot. <laughs> no, I've got that's. I don't have any points that I wanted to bring up. So I have one, one, one other final yeah, question sure. that I'm going to cut out. But, um, so it's John J. Gargas, and, right. so, and you say J, and someone else says John, and I was going to say thank you very much and do the handshake thing, which I'm still going to do and get on camera, but I have to know what to call you. I, I go by J, and I had to re-invoke John J. after 9-11 when I, all my documents had to match. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So, so I've always published as J. Period J. Gargas. Right. Because when I was a little kid, everybody called me J. Because my father's name was John. So I've always been J. And okay. so once people know me, they call me J. Okay. Well, thank you very much, J. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> thank you great. very much. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Biology, along with separate discussions with Nick Lane, Asino Silva, Stephen Shearer, and Matthew Walker. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.